So we are in the uh, fifth chapter, Actors, Acts 5, um, and kind of a little bit of background to what is going on in this case. Um, this, is, this was truly an incredible time, right? A time that when we look back on, it's hard to believe this was actually happening, right? But you know, just to kind of give you guys a little bit, a picture of, of the hype that was going on, right? You know, this is, this is you know, uh, Peter had preached his Pentecost message. The Holy Spirit had come in power, tongues of fire. Um, you know, 3,000 people came to Christ. You know, uh, yesterday, or not yesterday, last week, Phil preached about the healing of this lame man who was 40 years, you know, lame. You know, that resulted in another two, 3,000 people come to Christ. There is a full-blown revival going on right now. It is crazy. It is crazy times, right? And in Acts 5, it says, now many signs and wonders were regularly were done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So this was really, truly, perhaps a unique, a more just exalted time when God was just moving in power, right? Um, regularly done, not, you know, rarely done, regularly done. The apostles were just healing people, driving out demons, you know, speaking to them, whatever, right? And it says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they ca even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So this is, this is crazy. I'm just imagining like there's thousands of people lining up, you know, and this is not sort of like, oh, you know, maybe God is going to heal. It's like, you know, he's healing people left and right, doing the work that he was doing through Christ when he was on earth. You know, and it was, it's getting so out to the point that they're just carrying out the six of streets and like, you know, we don't have time. For, <laughs> we don't have time for Peter to talk to these people. We, you know, we got to speed this up and make this more efficient or something. And so they're laying them out on the streets, laying them on constant mats. So maybe, who knows, if Peter comes by and a shadow falls on them, maybe that will heal them. And, and perhaps it's doing that, you know, as that is going on. So this is the, the level of a power and wonder in which uh, of this era of this time in which God was working. You know, one of the difficult things we always kind of struggle with in Acts is, is this still possible today? And that's something kind of I've dug into. And, you know, I would agree that, you know, there are times in which God works, especially in power, regularly in these kinds of ways. And it's not something we can control. Um, but I wonder sometimes, you know, um, do we sort of arbitrarily or artificially shut the door on God moving in power perhaps because of what we're used to and because of our, our doubts or unbelief or things like that. So that's something I've always wondered kind of in the back of my head as I read through the book of Acts. And I read through, um, you know, later on in Acts, you know, there, there's this question that, you know, maybe this is just the apostles, um, but that's not true. You read the book of Acts, you know, it starts to move from the apostles to, you know, this, this, new, this new person, Paul, right, who comes and rises up and, and, and you see God work through people who, through ordinary people, um, I mean, the apostles themselves were ordinary people, but you see God work through just members of the church. Um, and you see that, and I've, I've kind of quoted this before in First Corinthians, you see gifting and power of the Spirit being poured out on anybody and everyone who believes in the name of Jesus. Um, and so I do believe in Acts, it does show this kind of giftedness that is for everybody, um, and it's something we can go through throughout history. If we look at the various revivals that have happened in history, you know, we can see that there, there legitimately have been times where things like this have happened. And so my question, you know, as I kind of dig into this is what is stopping this from happening in our day and age today? Um, why, do, why do we not see such things often? Why do we not live oftentimes in the full power of the Holy Spirit? 
And I, and I say that not because I'm expecting this, this has to happen in order for the Holy Spirit to be moving. No, no. Like, Holy Spirit can be moving in all kinds of different ways, bearing all kinds of different fruits. And I'm not saying this is necessarily what needs to happen in order for us to say God is truly moving. But at the same time, I wonder if we kind of lock God behind a box sometimes. Um, and I wonder if there are things in which we really, that God is eager to do in our lives, in our community, in our world, um, that perhaps we, um, perhaps there's something going on um, between us and him. Perhaps there's a reason why we are not living the full power of the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of what I want to dig into a little bit today. What is the mindset of these original disciples and these apostles? You know, what is kind of on their end? What were they at? What were they focusing on doing um, that allowed them to kind of live in this sort of way? And so we're going to read through a quick story that sort of um, encapsulates, I feel like, their, their mindset and their heart, okay? So in Acts 5, continues on, it says, but the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So immediately, almost immediately, when God is moving, persecution is happening, right? So high priest rose, um, they're filled with jealousy, they arrest the apostles, put them in public prison, so then jail, okay? But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to people all the words of this life. So can't even stop him. <laughs> prison doors open, go back in there and keep talking, right? And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the Senate of the people of Israel, sent to the prison, okay, bring them out. Let's figure out what to do with these troublemakers. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked, guards standing at the doors. When we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain, temple, and chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Because clearly the crowds are on the side of the apostles now. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What would you have done in that situation? They've given you a warning. They've given you the slap on the wrist. And remember, these are the people who crucified your leader, right? This is the Sanhedrin, the very people who you know what they're capable of doing, right? Um, and they've, they've, they've told you that, and, you know, they've locked you in jail. You've gotten your fair share of warnings. And here they are confronting you again and being like, they're like really, really, stop talking. Stop talking or something serious is going to happen. It's the unveiled kind of the threat going on here, right? What would you have done, right? Um, I think for so many of us, you know, we, we, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, before men, before people with power, I think, you know, I think for myself, I confess, I don't know what I would do. I don't know just in my own strength um, what I would have said in response. Maybe I would have been like, hey, maybe we can work something out, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe we can, you know, compromise, you know, none of, but that's not what they did. When we look at sort of the apostles and specifically Peter's response now, here's what he says. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, 
whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. There's no mincing of words. There's no softening of the blow here. You know, this is the plain truth and the plain fact. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I mean, what, a, what an incredible response, right? To people who are you know, coercing you, who are threatening you, and, and perhaps you don't even know what will happen to your life. You know, you don't even know whether you will be put to death. Um, but here they are, they're standing and says, we must obey God rather than men. I'm sure we would like it if you were not persecuting us, but we must obey God rather than men. I think that first thing that we see in these apostles, perhaps that was, that was I, I would say, a really key connection to God moving in such powerful ways was they had spirit-empowered obedience, spirit-empowered obedience. They were completely sold out. They were completely allegiant to what God said, you know, what, what God commanded them to do even when it was inconvenience, even when it was difficult, even when it was going to cost them something. I think that's in some ways where, you know, this is not to shame us, but just to say like, this is kind of in some ways, I would see a difference between these early apostles and us. I think for a lot of us, we obey until it is uncomfortable for us. I mean, I certainly do that. Um, we obey to a certain extent. Um, we have a certain commitment level, and beyond that, we're like, I'm out, Jesus. <laughs> like, it's too much for me. Um, and, and this is hard, right? I'm not saying this is something that easily can be done. Um, but there's something about the spirit moving in their lives that they were able to do this. Um, they were able to have this radical spirit-empowered obedience. This was something that really marked them. I think one other aspect of this was how they saw themselves. I don't think... I think at this point, their lives have been so transformed by what they saw and what they experienced from Jesus that they could say freely with Paul that I do not live for myself, but I live for Christ. There was a complete transformation and change between their desires and what they wanted. And now they were like, you know, that's not, that's not what I'm here for anymore. It's not about what I can get out of this. It's not about protecting myself even. You know, God has charged me and he's changed my life. And now I cannot help but to sit, but to stand here and to say, and to do the things that God has told me to do. It reminds me of that famous story of Luther um, back in the days of the Reformation. And, you know, he's, you know, I, and he's not a perfect figure. I never, when I, when I mention these people, I never want to say they're perfect or they're, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I do believe about him that was very striking was that you know, he was someone who strove to obey God rather than men. And can you imagine at that point being a, a Catholic monk at the time? And he never wanted to overthrow the Catholic Church, contrary to popular opinion. He, he actually just wanted to reform it. Um, and so he, you know, he questioned and he brought out all these things that he felt were wrong at the church in time. Um, he was brought before the Pope at that time. And he was, um, and he was you know, he was commanded to recant, you know, or he'd be excommunicated. And this is not something Luther took lightly. And it was said that he spent the whole night praying um, in his room, you know, praying like, man, is this really like, it's hard to go against authority, to go against this huge, all the weight and power of man. But he comes before, you know, the next day and he says, you know, in, I'm paraphrasing here, but in essence, the same words, right? He says like, I can't, I, I have to say this. This is my conscience before God. 
And I'm sorry, but God is greater than y'all. So I'm going to say it. I'm going to keep standing and you can't stop me from doing it. I think there is something about that when our allegiance is so committed to God's will and to his commands. Um, And that's something that I think is such a unique aspect of of these apostles in this early time, a, a, a sign and marker of what they were doing, of what God was doing in their lives. Amy Carmichael, the famous um, she was a missionary um, to India. Um, she was um, in the 1800s, 1900s, I think, started an orphanage. Um, she was very involved, very engaged. Um, just this, just a wonderful woman, you know, worth reading her biography. Um, she wrote this famous phrase, um, this, this famous quote is from her. She said, what is the secret to great living? What is the secret to great living? Entire separation to Christ and devotion to him entire separation to Christ and devotion to him. Thus speaks every man and woman whose life has made more than a passing flicker in the spiritual realm. And it's covered a little bit, but it says, it is the life that has no time for trifling that counts. It is life that has no time for trifling that counts. And I think what Amy was trying to say in, in her biography, she said, anybody can live like these lives that are powerful testimonies of God. But it's up to you. (laughs) Do you want that? Do you really want that? Here's what it will cost. Here's what the secret is. Entire separation to Christ and devotion to him. You can have that. um, But it is the life that has no time for trifling that counts. It's a quote that stuck with me over the years. Unfortunately, I feel like my life has had a lot of time for trifling. <laughs> and it's something that I've just always strove to be like, wow, what would it look like for my life to be completely devoted to Christ and everything that he says and he commands me to do? I want to mention this because I do think we have this tendency to exalt some of these people and to look at and to be like, oh, I could never live like that. But the thing is, the irony was that just a few weeks prior, well, a little bit more than a few weeks prior, but a few months prior, um, Peter, this man who had stood before the Sanhedrin saying, we must obey God rather than men. I'm ready to go to my death if that be necessary. You know, this was when Jesus was still alive. Um, before his crucifixion, Peter's like, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus is like, nope, you are not. <laughs> I tell you, Peter, rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And we see that at, you know, Christ's crucifixion, all the bravado and courage of men, all of this, yeah, I'm going to go with you. We're ready. You know, I'm, I'm ready. You know, all this human conjured sort of bravado just completely faded away, just completely melted. Um, all the disciples abandoned Jesus, right? They all fled for their lives, um, like I think most of us would do. Um, and they're like, yeah, <laughs> they denied him, right? And yet a few months later, here it is, Peter, this incredible transformation in his life. And I say this because I think there was a tendency to be like, man, that's Peter. I can never live up to that. I don't think so. I think when we read the book of Acts, when we read these kinds of things, I see this and I'm like, it's not Peter. Peter was a coward. Peter was just like us. Peter was ordinary, unschooled men. But God worked in his life. God took hold of him somewhere in those few months and he changed him. And it's possible. I go back to sort of where this radical obedience came from. 
I came from this is, I think this is what happens in Peter and the apostles' lives. I think their view of God was utterly expanded in those, those, those months of the Pentecost and of, and of all that was going on. Um, here's them praying, and this is in Acts 4, this is the chapter beforehand. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, he's quoting a psalm here. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his, against his anointed. For truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you have both anointed, you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so this is their prayer, right? And, and you can see this. I mean, we all believe in the sovereignty of God, right? Like, who, you know, we all know that theologically, but I think, and I, I'm sure Peter and them like knew that beforehand, but something had happened in their lives. In these few weeks of the Pentecost, something had happened that made them truly be like, wow, God really is sovereign. He really made the heaven and the earth and the sea. And he really is unstoppable. He really, there really is nothing that gets in the way between what God wants to happen. And, they, and you know, he's quoting all these things. He says, even Jesus' crucifixion, even that was your hand and your plan are predestined to take that place. And so there was this huge sense of God in their lives. This is a big view of how big and how sovereign God was. And that enabled, that largely, I think, was this perspective change in their lives that gave them this boldness. Um, here they are praying, give us the boldness, Lord, to continue to obey you and to speak. Finally, I think a last aspect, and I kind of alluded to this already, is that they were concerned for God's kingdom over themselves, right? It says, we must obey God rather than men. Go and stand in the temple and speak to people on the words of this life. They come to a place where they understood that they were on this mission to deliver life-saving news to people. And they knew that this was so important that, you know, it just it was over their lives. It was over their comfort, their well-being, everything about them. And I think that's something that I think a lot of times that gets in the way for us, right, is that we're not willing to surrender. And we want to obey God. We want to follow him. We also want a lot of things in our lives, too. And we're not willing, oftentimes. We hold on to those things. And, and I think surrender is so many times necessary for full obedience. Surrender is necessary to be like, God, your will, your will and your kingdom come. And it's impossible, I think, for us to obey when we are fully holding on to others, when we're holding on to other things above him. I was at a conference, like, 10 years ago, this was when I was in college. Um, I remember, you know, this is one of those conferences. I think Francis Chan spoke at it. And there's some other guy. I don't even know his name, um, but I remember his illustration. And, you know, and he was challenging college students like I was at the time towards, yeah, a radical kind of transformation of how they perceived their life and how they perceived what they were going to do with their lives, right? Because when you're a college student, that's the big question right? The capital, this is like just the huge question. What am I going to do with my life? You know, and go to med school, be an engineer. Do I go do this? Do I go do that? You know, all these big questions, right? And 
And he wanted to challenge these Colossians, you know, to think about the kingdom of God first in their lives. And so we gave this illustration, held up a blank sheet of paper. I don't have a blank sheet of paper, but we said, okay, this is usually how we go about trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives, right? So we write down, all right, God, um, I want to be a doctor. So I'm going to write that down. I want a family. I'm going to write that down. I would like to live in California. So I write that down. Uh, I want this. I want that. Uh, I want a girlfriend. I want a boyfriend. You know, these things, right? But then we're a Christian. We're conscious. We're like, yeah, you know, but I, but I don't know if that's God's will, right? I don't know if that's God's will, right? And so we hand it to God and we say, you know, we say, can you sign at the bottom, Lord, just to certify that you bless this, <laughs> Like you bless us. And if you want me to take some things off, yeah, maybe, you know, take some things off. That's okay. You know, but, you know, bless sign at the bottom and, and say that, yes, this is your will and I'll be good to go. That's how most of the time, how people want to think about God's will. And he says, that's not how that works. That's not really how that works. It's like, this is how it works. He said, God gives you a blank piece of paper. It says on this blank piece of paper, which is not written yet, will be everything you will go through and you will live through for the glory of my name. And he says, will you sign at the bottom? Will you sign at the bottom saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, to whatever you say, whatever you do, my life is yours, right? Um, it's not about going to God and being like, this is my plan, fit into my box here, Lord. But it's about this place of surrender and being, God, my life is yours. My life is yours. Do what you want to do through it and help me to seek your will. Help me to conform to what you are doing not the other way around. I think so many times that is the reason why we don't see God working in our lives is because we are so focused on making our plans, our purposes, our kingdoms happen. And a lot of those things are not bad things, right? They're never bad things like God prohibits being married, going to med school, family, you know, none of these things are wrong. But a lot of times we put them ahead of God. Um, and that's the difficult thing. That is the, that is the step I think that so many times, you know, I found myself at the at the precipice of, and just, just finding it so hard to take. This is a yes, Lord, I surrender. Even these things that are so dear to my heart, that I love all of my heart, and they are good things. Lord, you are above them, and your purpose, your plan, your kingdom above even these things. Concern for God's kingdom over themselves. So we see how the story ends. It says, when they heard this, this is the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Not surprising. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, this is a Pharisee, right, on the Sanhedrin speaking. Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. Before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody this happens regularly, apparently, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. All who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So the end of the story, this incredible story, right, is that a Pharisee stands up and defends the apostles. And the Pharisee in his, I don't know whether he was believing at the time or not, 
even he could see something very obvious, right? You might be opposing God here. And so let's just wait this out and see, because if this is from man, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. We've seen this happen so many times. Or we killed their leader. It's not going to work. It's not going to last. It's not going to have staying power. But if this is God, there is nothing you and I can do to stop it. I think that's what all of this hang, hangs on. That's what all of Acts hangs on. That as we go through and read this book, we see, yes, obedience, radical surrender to God. And yet we also see a God who is faithful to work through them, who is unstoppable, no matter, no matter what happens, to accomplish what he says he will do. That's like what, kind of what I want to challenge us with today to think about. I want to end with one story. This is one of my favorite stories. Um, the story of, I call this the George Mueller story of the fog. Um, I love this story. It's something, every time I listen to this story, I always just think about, man, this is what, this is, this is the kind of relationship God, this is the kind of faith I would look like, I would love to see. So I want to end with this um, and challenge us also to have such faith. This is George Mueller. He's a guy in the 1800s, a British man who also started a number of orphanages. He's a pastor. Um, he's famous for a lot of things, right? He really believed that God would provide. And so he supported, you know, some 10,000 children through prayer, right? He had no financial system. He had no, you know, sort of thing. He just said, I'm praying and then God's going to provide, right? Controversial, but that's just what he was. You know, he was like, I believe God will provide. And so he, here's a story of him um, on a ship. And this is a story. This is from the perspective of a captain who had this life-changing transformation, life-changing encounter with this man, George Muller. And so this is his testimony. He says, we had a man of God on board, George Muller of Bristol. I'd been on the bridge for 22 hours and never left it. I was startled by someone's tapping on my shoulder. It was George Muller. Captain, he said. I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. This was Wednesday. It is impossible, the captain said. I said, very well, George Muller says. If your ship can't take me, God will find some other means of locomotion to take me. I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. Captain, I would willingly help you, but how can I? I'm helpless. Um, there's a great fog that is occurring that's stopping the ship from moving. George Muller says, let us go down to the chart room and pray, he said. I looked at this man, I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could this man have come from? I've never heard of such thing. Mr. Muller, I said, do you know how dense this fog is? No, he replied, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God it controls every circumstance of my life. He went down on his knees and he prayed one of the most simple prayers. I thought to myself, this would suit a children's class where the children were not more than eight or nine years of age. The burden of his prayer was something like this. Oh Lord, if it is consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you have made for me in Quebec for Saturday. I believe it is your will. When he had finished, I was gonna pray but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. He said, first, you don't believe God will do it. And second, I, I believe he already has done it. There's no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. I looked at him and George Muller said this, Captain, I've known my Lord for 57 years and there's never been a single day that I failed to gain an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door and you will find that the fog is gone. I got up. And the fog was gone. 
On Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec. And I look at that, and every time I read stuff, I'm like, do I actually, do I actually believe you could live like this? Like, that's wild. And I think about how I live, and I, this is a confession for me. I feel like I lack this. I lack faith. This is not my natural inclination. I feel the same way when I hear a story like this. When I read stories like this, I say to God, Lord, I want faith like that. I want a relationship with you like that. I don't know how, but I want to get there. <laughs> I want to live like that. I want to walk with you like that. And I want to challenge you in the same way today. I know we're not there. I know all of us feel like we're there. But I want to challenge you to open your heart to the Lord. Set aside perhaps all the years of questions and doubts and sad skepticism and to simply say to the Lord today, help my unbelief and belief. Help me to start to see the way that you are so present and sovereign in every aspect of my life and how I can, I can have this relationship with you. I can have this life of radical obedience and surrender and seeing you work. It is possible. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer today, this morning. Prayer to you, the living God. God, even as I say, share these words, Lord, I, I feel foolish, Lord. I feel like... I question how much I believe. But God, I, I know that that's not what you asked for. You don't ask for me to come in already having mighty faith or anything. You said that faith as a mustard seed is sufficient to move mountains. And so, Lord, my eye is not on myself, not on my capability to live out any of this stuff but on you, Lord. You are the God who transforms, who moves. You are the God who seeks to do so through ordinary, cowardly, unbelieving, broken people so that you may be glorified. God, I just pray that for us today, that for us, as we open our hearts to you, as we come before you, Lord, and just say, God, help me, help me to live in obedience to you. Help me to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray, would you answer? And would you move? And would you fill? And would you awaken? And would you challenge us? And would you fill us, Lord, and, and pour out your spirit on us so that we may overflow? That's my prayer for all of us here, for every person sitting here, that in one way or another, you might meet us, whether it's here now, whether it's later in the week, whether it's years down the line, that you might transform us to live lives that are fully sold out for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.